Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to the author of Roaring Metropolis, Businessmen's Campaign for a Civic Welfare State. The book is published by Penn Press this year, and the author is Daniel Amsterdam. Dan, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Pleasure to have you on. Pleasure to have read the book. Uh, why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself before we get into our conversation about the book? Okay, I'm a historian by training. Um, I'm currently an assistant professor uh, in the School of History and Sociology at Georgia Tech. I study uh, primarily the history of cities, social policy, and inequality across the 20th century. Before coming to Georgia Tech, I was on the faculty at Ohio State for uh, a little bit and did my graduate work at the University of Pennsylvania. Super. It's um, such an interesting topic, and I think you're way into this is is so interesting. Um, your argument seems to be, at least at the start, that during the early part of the 20th century, urban power brokers were not local business owners. Um, if not, if, if, if these were not the, the central players in, in how cities were run, who is in charge of cities like Atlanta and Detroit and Philadelphia before the time period that you study? Uh, well, so that's right. I mean, in the early 20th century, really in the uh, from the turn of the 20th century through World War One, um, you know, wealthy business people were major players in local politics, as I describe in the book, uh, before getting to the kind of thrust of my story in the 1920s, when I find that business people especially had a great deal of power and influence um, over urban politics, um, especially in comparison to this earlier pre-World War One period. Um, sort of the answer to your question is that it's complicated and it differed by um, city. Um, for instance, in Philadelphia, there was a, you know, a real slice of the business community that was very powerful. These were utility moguls like um, Peter Widener, uh, William Elkins, who were very, very connected to the notoriously corrupt political machine in Philadelphia. And they were able to wield a significant amount of power um, in the early 20th century, although the kind of dynamics surrounding machine politics and the controversies surrounding machine politics often stymied what they were trying to do. Um, and in part, that was because a um, not necessarily as wealthy, but also very uh, prominent and even larger subset of the business community in Philadelphia was really opposed to machine rule. So there was this kind of division within the business elite in the early 20th, early decades of the 20th century that made it hard for business people to get what they wanted out of um, local government. Uh, so taking Philadelphia as a continuing example, however, by the 1920s, business people's frustration with um, government inaction due to this gridlock that I just um, described based in controversies around machine rule, uh, business people across the board had just gotten really frustrated with that. And they had, um, you know, they had uh, come to sort of prioritize getting their policy goals done, which included a very, very aggressive 
um, attempt to uh, push government to spend on a wide variety of social policies, they started to prioritize that and accomplishing that over settling questions of political process and questions of purity in, um, um, uh, in local politics. Uh, and so that slice of the business elite that was opposed to the political machine increasingly makes peace with machine tactics. And you see the business elite sort of consolidating behind machine rule, which helps to unleash uh, what is a truly unprecedented surge in social spending and public spending more generally in Philadelphia. Um, so that's just one example. Uh, yeah. Now, and let me just so so I can so we don't get too far into your story. We lay a little bit more of the groundwork um, because I think each one of these cases is so interesting. But just to kind of get some of the more foundation here set. Yeah. Uh, much of your book is about how those with money gained influence, uh, additional influence through organizations. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what uh, the some of the types of organizations that arise during this time period to represent the businessmen that are in your subtitle? Yeah, um, no, that's a great question. Uh, you know, chambers of commerce are a leading um, source of organizational power as time moves on um, throughout the period. Also, employers associations, which are really anti-union associations for the most part. And sometimes when business groups, uh, you know, or individual business people especially, um, wanted to kind of influence uh, uh, an agenda on their own or uh, with particular allies, they would form their own political groups. Uh, kind of the best example of this was in Detroit, one of the three main studies that I, uh, cities that I studied, Philadelphia being one, Atlanta being another, and Detroit being um, uh, the third that I study most intensively. Um, there, you know, the president of Cadillac, Henry Leland, founds this organization, the Detroit Citizens League, which originally wants to kind of revamp the city charter, the basic structure of elections to try to increase uh, elite influence in city politics. And then he gets into all sorts of other things. And from forming his own organization, he starts to build alliances across uh, the, the uh, increasingly con um, coherent business class in Detroit during the early 20th century. Now, you, as you just mentioned, you focus on these three cities. Why these three? This doesn't include New York. This doesn't include Chicago. Some of the cities that uh, doesn't include Boston. Uh, what's going on in these uh, these three cities during the 1920s that is so significant? Well, really, it has to do with my being interested in a question that has been so fundamental to um, political science and sociology, this question of to modify it to a degree. Uh, how and to what degree the, the ruling class, meaning the business elite, rule. Um, and so I wanted to trace corporate politics, really, across three def very different political cities, very different political regimes. Philadelphia being sort of the quintessentially machine-dominated city in the early 20th century. Uh, Detroit was a city that had some machine politics or something similar, but by the 1920s, um, had become kind of a poster child of reform politics, uh, and be, in part because of Henry Leland, who I just mentioned, ability to uh, organize business people to rewrite the city charter. Um, and then Atlanta serves then as, as an example of um, the city of widespread disfranchisement. And at the same time, though, in addition to those kind of uh, uh, representing essential political regimes of the early 20th century, those cities also allow me to uh, explore how business 
Eastman's political activism interacted with the activism of other groups, including uh, middle class women's associations, organized labor, uh, African-American and immigrant activists, um, and even the Ku Klux Klan. So uh, into the 1920s, uh, business elites seek out this new type of power, but it wasn't always to advance sort of a a crude bottom line. what was on the policy agenda of these business organizations in these cities? What did, what did they care about and, and what, what did they care about that maybe is surprising? Okay, that's, that's a great question. Um, you know, really uh, what I focus on in the book is issues of social policy and social spending. Um, and what I find is that business people uh, organized around um, – uh, certain social policies with a high degree of commonality across places. And these included uh, social policies like public education, um, building parks, city planning, uh, implementing, play, you know, building playgrounds across the city at a time when playgrounds were different than they are today. I mean, they were really places where public employees supervised children's play in a way that would be totally unfamiliar to us today. I mean, picture kind of a drop-off gym class. Um, uh, you know, they were also very uh, focused on building decentralized cities on alleviating residential congestion. So they were interested in social policies that did certain things. And this was even though they were pretty famously opposed to the rise of what we call the social welfare state, sort of the collection of um, social policies we identify usually with the New Deal. So the implementation of unemployment compensation, public pensions for the elderly, a federal minimum wage, maximum wage uh, hours laws. Uh, really, uh, the social welfare state being kind of a collection of policies that uh, controlled how employers could treat their employees, uh, determined how much employers had to pay their employees, um, sort of intervened in the labor market to limit employers' power and to limit the possible exploitation of workers. Uh, most employers were, weren't really into that. They wanted to control wages. They wanted to control their own firms. Uh, but nonetheless, they favored different social policies, um, again, such as schools, parks, playgrounds, uh, also building museums, libraries, um, a collection of programs that I call the civic welfare state. And I call it that for two reasons. One, because Uh, Business people were very concerned about the social conditions and the political conditions of cities at that time. And they were particularly focused on promoting social policies and, again, government-sponsored, local government social policies that could uh, further a particular vision of citizenship. Um, And at the same time, business people came to believe, especially in sort of more up-and-coming cities like Atlanta, that these kinds of programs were things that business people wanted. And so at the same time as they were focused on citizenship, they were also focused on kind of the well-being of economic well-being of cities themselves. So civic and civic welfare state has this double meaning. And yeah, I mean, it certainly was in some ways crassly about, you know, profit, right? But these business people also existed in local democracies. And they uh, were very concerned in finding ways to make those democracies friendly to uh, their interests and to capitalism more generally. So it would be overly reductive to merely say that it was about, um, you know, just kind of uh, profit at the end of the day. Now, were they alone on these issues? Uh, Who who are some of the groups that they form common cause with? And who is their greatest opposition? Uh, You mentioned a couple 
at the be- at the beginning of our conversation, but but who is who is opposing some of these moves for a civic welfare state? Well, you know, they have a, a you know, there were many activists in the early 20th century that favored these sorts of programs, right? Um, famously, these are kind of at the core in some ways of what we call the progressive agenda in the early 20th century. Business people were sort of different in some ways than some of the most quintessential and famous progressives like John Dewey, Jane Addams, etc. Because these business people really thought that um, these programs were both necessary and sufficient for building good cities, whereas you know, a reformer like Jane Addams, John Dewey, uh, Florence Kelly, etc. Um, you know, they thought that there needed to be, uh, over time especially, their thinking evolved into uh, focusing more on the development of a, a robust social safety net uh, that really tried to prevent economic insecurity um, in a larger scale than, and certainly in ways that business people largely rejected. Um, so in a sense, uh, you know, they had common cause, uh, and, and in some ways, their agenda was not always controversial, yet they were able to maneuver in a way so that it was uh, often business interests, allies of business interests, who were able to control spending, to shape its particular form, to uh, give particular content to the programs that uh, business people especially wanted to see. Um, and then in terms of their uh, opposition, uh, again, it really dep- it, 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 uh, it's in flux in different cities. Um, and in some ways, uh, you know, they, uh, it, was, it was more the, not necessarily the, the basic content of their agenda that caused opposition. It was that um, it was about their desire to control. And, and, and in this regard, they often, of course, ran into opposition from organized labor, um, also, immigrant groups were sometimes opposed to kind of this very, uh, quote unquote, Americanizing thrust of a lot of the programs that business people wanted to see implemented. Um, and then every now and again in cities, you kind of see these uh, homeowners associations rise and, and object to kind of the rising uh, cost of some of these programs. Uh, that happens in Detroit, for instance, which prevents uh, what I think is, in retrospect, a surprising goal of the business elite in Detroit, which was to build a you know big subway system, even though it, this was a famously automobile-friendly city. Uh, but business interests are not able to do that because um, homeowners just really don't want to foot the bill. Uh, so again, you know what I try to show is that uh, whether it's opposition, support, alliances, etc., there's a lot of context that really matters here. Um, and a lot of contingency to this story. Now, you just note one of the the policy failures in Detroit. I wonder if there's a a notable success story that sort of tells the story from one of these cities of something that um, maybe even we sort of still have with us that that can be attributed to the, the politics and sort of the political influence during this time period of the businessmen's campaign um, does something stand out from you from one of these you know, really interesting cities? Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of um, uh, landmarks from, from the early 20th century that we still have with us today are deeply connected to this story. Uh, maybe most recognizably because of the movie Rocky is the art museum in Philadelphia that you know, Sylvester Stallone's character runs up the steps of and jumps on top of. That is a, a, a pure product of the politics that I am describing um, the entire Benjamin Franklin Parkway that, that Sylvester Stallone, Stallone runs down is also a product of that. 
in Detroit, the Detroit Institute of Arts, which is now uh, home to those fantastic murals by Diego Rivera, um, was part of this agenda. Um, and so was the Detroit Public Library across the street there. Um, you know, a lot of city beautiful style planning comes from this. Uh, if you were to drive around a city like Detroit or Philadelphia and Atlanta to some degree, you would notice that there were, um, you know, many incredibly expensive, large, uh, elaborate, um, monumental uh, high schools built during this time period, for instance, that were deeply attached to this uh, social policy agenda as well. Um, so, yeah, the, the effects were really durable in many ways. Yeah, the, the book is just so interesting. The, the title, again, is Roaring Metropolis, Businessmen's Campaign for a Civic Welfare State, published by Penn Press in 2016. Daniel Amsterdam, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it. <laughs>